Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Episode 3 of the PFRA podcast, the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast. John Bozica, George Bozica, along with you. Episode 1, we talked to Mark Miller, former Browns quarterback. Episode 2, we talked to historian in uh, Dennis Crawford. And uh, episode 3 now tonight, we have another great guest coming up or uh, whenever you're listening to this. I always say tonight because we record these at night, but uh, whenever you're listening to it, it's probably not during the night. We hope it's on the way to work, wherever it may uh, be. And wherever you're listening to it, please uh, make sure you give us a rating. Um, follow us if you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Um, give us a rating. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Subscribe. And uh, as I said before, George and I will do our best to try to uh, take those notes and uh, give you guys, the listeners, exactly what it is that you're asking for. George, uh, episode three tonight. Excited about this. Uh, I think we've had two good episodes so far, a lot of good content. Um, I think we're slowly building this. We've got some uh, things in the works coming down the line in a bit here. We're going to talk to some players, some more of those coming up, but uh, kind of a different story tonight. Yeah, tonight our guest is uh, uh, Greg Fasseri. Uh Greg uh, recently released a book uh, called uh, Gridiron Legacy, uh, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. Uh, and this is a uh, book that Greg uh, researched for a number of years. It was a labor of love for him. And uh, without, I guess, giving away what the book is about, um, it's uh, it's a uh, beautifully put together book, a coffee table book with uh, uh, a great story and uh, also uh, some great photographs and great illustrations uh, about uh, a story that has a uh, personal touch for him about the very early days of pro football pre-NFL. The Maslin Tigers, correct? That is part of the story, yes. Yeah. The original Maslin Tigers pro football team. Right. Uh, for listeners that are obviously in the Stark County area, when they hear Maslin Tigers, they think of the uh, the high school dynasty, the Maslin Tigers, but this is the original uh, I thought pro. all those titles were mythical. Yeah. No, no I'm uh, joking with yeah. you. This is the original uh, uh, pro Maslin Tigers. Uh, which actually has a tie to the high school team, which we'll, I'm right. sure we'll talk about. Right. Great. And, and it's interesting too, because, you know, anytime you associate anything with Maslin, uh, as I jest about the history of the Tigers, um, you know, there is such a long line and a lineage throughout the town of history. And, and this book, you know, obviously relates to the pro team, um, but uh, fans there, anything that is tiger related, they kind of put under their purview of like, well, that's Maslin, you know, and it's like the town has that orange and black pride about everything. So even though it was the pro team, lots of the people there, including some of the historians of the team have helped him put some things together in this. So um, I know we're going to hear some of those stories tonight and that's going to be exciting. And uh, Greg will be joining us when we come back.
Joined now by uh, Greg Fasseri, uh, who we uh, mentioned earlier in the opening and uh, an author of a book that has recently come out, a great coffee table book. And uh, Greg, thanks for joining us, George and I, and uh, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me uh, and congrats on the new PFRA podcast. It's exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been uh, it's been fun so far. So tell us about the book. Um, we've obviously already given the title out, but um, tell us about it. You can give the title again. You can tell us where it kind of started, where the the inspiration came from to put this together, because it really is a beautiful book. I mean, we have a copy sitting right in front of us right now as we're recording this. And, uh, you know, tell us about that, what went into it and, and kind of the process and where you came up with the name and so on and so forth. Well, thanks for your support. Glad you have one and um, and to to appreciate the the detail of it. So the inspiration uh, for Gridiron Legacy, pro football's missing origin story, as it came to be known, uh, was my great grandfather, Bob Shiring, who I knew growing up as a young boy uh, in Pittsburgh in the suburb, um, eastern suburb of Pittsburgh called Wilmerding, which is about 10 miles uh, from downtown, um, part of the Monongahela Valley, sort of the Westinghouse Airbrake community, um, very old industrial area where my grandmother lived. She had three photos, large framed photos, probably 24 by 36, something like that, 18 by 24, not sure, uh, including the frame, but um, of these two of which were clearly labeled the Maslin Tigers from 1905 and 1906. And one was unidentified, but had an H on, on a few of the sweaters. And I, it took me um, <laughs> decades, you know, until I became an adult to figure out that that was the Homestead Library and Athletic Club, which is um, about five miles east of, of Pittsburgh in a, in a steel community. Um, Homestead Steel became Carnegie Steel, became um u.s steel eventually so um my great-grandfather played for that 1901 world championship homestead team with um bunches of ivy league all-americans just the, some of the best professionals of that time and uh he however only had actually an eighth grade education didn't even go to high school but wow. um, like some uh in the area just picked up football and and uh, started playing some some local you know, club teams and eventually some really good amateur teams, including the uh, James F. Lallis Athletic Club, which was the state, um, you know, amateur champion. And um, um, I guess from playing Homestead, since pros played amateur teams, he became um, he was recruited to join the Homestead team. So. The more I learned about him and his career, basically being the best center of the pre-NFL era, um, I, I just always wanted to know more and and kept digging and digging and um, sort of went from there. Well, and and you mentioned that you mentioned the pre-NFL era, and and obviously those were the days where um, you know teams were kind of just put together on a whim, you know, and and things happen, and then. They came and they went, and and sometimes seasons happened as quickly as teams folded. Um, so it was quite a time to play professional football. Um, tell me kind of what the story then is as people are starting to look at the book. What is the story that they're going to hear 
if they're going to get into the book. And then we'll get into some more of the details that we have, because I know George has a lot of questions about that. Mm -hmm. But if people are going to leave through this, what are they going to see? Well, the biggest question, you know, um, in, in sort of the heart and, and theme of the book was was a uh, an unsolved cold case of an alleged gambling scandal that happened in the 1906 season between the uh, Maslin Tigers and Canton Bulldogs, which were the two best teams in the country, pro teams at the time. So wanting to tell that story, if I could, and combine it with the photos that I inherited from my great grandfather's career into, into a really special book. I mean, a couple of things that nobody had those photos and, and that actually solving that case by finding a, a court file in, in Ohio in Stark County that had the depositions from a case that never got to trial created the opportunity to do the book. So then the question became, where does the book start? How does it start? You know, how far do I go back? And it just seemed like to do the whole um, history of football justice, I, I had to connect the dots from the beginning. So there are a few pages just about the origins of of, of um, ball games, you know, in, in in Europe in the Middle Ages, just kind of fun stuff, and then how it evolved to um, um, soccer and rugby and then American football shortly you know, uh, after the Civil War. So after a brief introduction, we get into the, the birth of pro football and um, initially in the Pittsburgh area and then how it transitioned to Ohio and, and into the, the, uh, the drama of the scandal and its resolution. So that's sort of the arc of the book. I thought it was interesting uh, when I was looking through the book and uh, reading it in preparation that you said two of your sort of mentors when you decided you were going to start this quest uh, were Bob Carroll and Joe Horrigan. Uh, can you can you go into that? Right. So my grandmother passed away in 2007. And, and uh, when we cleaned out her home in Wilmerding, um, I found another huge box of photos you know from from his football career bob shiring's career and and i instantly knew that they were special and and you know not just the typical team photos either like some rare like buddy type pictures small group pictures action pictures um individuals that i didn't recognize so uh some were um named on the back and and others weren't so i i wanted to find out more about them at first and th and that's when I, you know, to get some help, I, I went online and found the PFRA for for the first time, and and Bob Carroll was uh, still with us, and he was um, reachable in I guess North Huntington, Pennsylvania, where he lived near Pittsburgh, and he was very helpful. He was he wasn't in great health at the time, but he he was still passionate about pro football and very you know passionate about what I would fa had found and uh, asked if I would send him copies of the pictures. And, and so we had some fun for uh, a couple months, you know, communicating about them and he helped me identify them all. And then pointed me to, to Joe Horrigan at the Hall of Fame. And having said that he and Joe worked together at the, in the early, earliest days of, of the PFRA, I think starting in 1979. And, and he said each of them took a year, you know, and, and wrote an article about one year back and forth and back and forth. And, and that's how all those great articles were, you know, put on the PFRA's website. And I, I still think, you know, some of the best research, if not the best from that period um, available. So um, 
they both, you know, recognized how unique and special the photos were and, and encouraged me to keep going and uh, and and that there was this sort of still unresolved um, pace to to explore, to, to add to the photos. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing I was reminded of when I read the book is uh, there's an old Western movie that came out that John Ford directed with Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And at the end of the movie, Jimmy Stewart is talking to a reporter and Jimmy Stewart has just told the story of the man who shot Liberty Valance. And it wasn't as they thought the story was. And the reporter says to him, he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. <laughs> I was, I was taken by that because your book did the exact opposite. Instead of talking about the legend, you basically found some interesting facts through your quest and through your research, uh, and you've told the facts. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the and one of the the first things that that came to mind was your research on the first forward pass. Greg, you uh, didn't you didn't think you'd you'd get a, a movie lesson too about the man who shot Liberty Valance, did you? He's he's good for more than just football. Go ahead. Some another one from my list. I guess so. So about the forward pass. Go ahead. The forward pass. Yeah, it, it was. Um... It was an aside, uh, really, and, and another one of many rabbit holes that, that I ended up going down uh, as I was writing the story. So uh, really cool how, how it came to pass that um, one of my many visits to Maslin, the wonderful people um, uh, in, in Maslin in the community, uh, as my network there grew, I was introduced to the folks at the Maslin Booster Club. And these, these are sort of the old guard and uh, the, the keepers of the flame of, of the Maslin memorabilia in great folks museum. Yeah. And um, uh, Gene Berner was the head of it at the time, who's no longer with us, but uh, and um, and some others, uh, Gary Vogt, I remember, was in the room and uh, Ron Prunty, who's still with us, the, the videographer from Maslin, who does all the, the games. Love so, Ron. Yo, he what a great guy. And um, so we all came together in this old middle school, which was abandoned, and they used for for their um, for the for their museum, you know, their storage basically. And as I explained to them, I think Margie vote, not related to Gary, introduced me to them. And as as, as I was telling them the story um, of what I was trying to accomplish, Ron lit up and and brought out these old laminated 1906 newspapers um, from the Maslin paper and uh, the Maslin Gleaner. And um, so what uh, he had recognized when he found them and, and he explained that he discovered them there when they moved into that building that he, they were just left there for some reason. I mean, I, that's amazing how that could be possible, but he just um, asked if whoever rented them the building if he could have them and they agreed so laminated them with with foresight and and so he brought out these 1906 daily papers um that had never been digitized even in the Maslin library or the Ohio library in, in Columbus um only the weekend papers had been um put on microfilm so obviously the games took place on the weekends and then so the game stories came out during the week and so 
this was the first time the you know the details of the games were 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 available and uh ron was good enough i couldn't read them all at the time uh he he made copies of them and sent me them in, in you know, actual size in, in a tube. And I just put them away for a few years until I got into, you know, down the road in the story, writing it to the to 1906. And I started going through the papers day by day to, to see what was relevant. And boom, there it was, you know, in, in the headline, as clear as day, Tigers throw the four, first forward pass. And I'm like, and it was successful, you know, went for, two touchdowns and, and, um, and that, um, you know, the, the legend has it, you know, the, in the hall of fame and everything that Peggy Parrott was the guy who threw in the first forward pass and was for the Maslin Tigers, but no, it was not Peggy Parrott. It was Charlie Moran. And I'm like, wait a minute. He, he said, and Moran threw the pass to Parrott. And I'm like, so I had to go back and, and look at the, the stories again. And, and, and first of all, Ask myself, what date was this? So it was actually two weeks before Parrot had allegedly thrown the first forward pass. And um, it turned out that while Parrot had started the season as quarterback, they lost one of their players, a tight end, to, to Canton. Uh, and so Parrot had to fill in at end, and Moran could play quarterback, and they shuffled around. And that they didn't throw a pass in the first game of the season, but the second game... Um, that's when it happened so as clear as as day uh moran you know through the first forward pass and and so i wrote an article for the pfra to uh to update the history um last year or so what was it like knowing um because i mean we obviously talked in the open too that this for you not just a, a research project but truly as george put it a labor of love because it involves uh, a family member um from yesteryear but What's it like to know that that Bob, uh, somebody in your bloodline, had a, an influence on that, had an influence on such a ginormous moment in the game that we know today where, you know, the forward pass back then was looked at something as being like, it's like, well, what did they just do? And now it's like, if you don't throw at least 30 passes a game, you're going to lose the NFL game that you're playing right. in. So it's like, what's it like to know that Bob Shiring, someone in your bloodline, your great grandfather, what's it like to know that he was there in that moment and was part of that huddle, part of that moment when that took place? Right. And as the captain of the team, by the way, pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. As a, it's, it's a little footnote, you know, he snapped the ball for the first forward pass. Right. So, that's, I mean, that's, that's a huge deal though. I mean, it, you can't, it's what we always say. The play can't start without the center. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's gotta be such a, a crazy thing to know that, that your grandfather was the first person to touch the ball on the force forward pass that's i mean that that's that's huge your great grandfather great grandfather right thanks it it's it's fun to me but much bigger uh to me was knowing that he became the captain and something about his character made him worthy of of being voted you know elected the captain of, of this best team in the country surrounded by all these Ivy League All-Americans, well-educated, you know, players who went on to become great politicians, attorney, whatever in the country, and that they saw his character as being worthy to be their leader, I, I think means a lot more to me than, than that. And and as just so as the patriarch of our family, I think is is a was very satisfying. 
which takes us to the 2006 or 1906 season, I should say, 2006. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically the heart of the book is the uh, 1906 season. As you said, you were on this quest to finish the story uh, in regard to that, because there had been a story for years that involved, obviously, the, the Bulldogs and the top names that season. And uh, I think most historians had heard of the name Blondie Wallace uh, and the gambling scandal. Uh, but you wanted to get to the bottom of it because you felt that the whole story had not been told. You know that your great-grandfather played a role in that and uh, actually was, uh, and I'll let you tell the story, was actually one of the good guys. Uh, yeah. If you can elaborate on, you know, that quest, uh, you mentioned, obviously, that you found a, a case file in Stark County. I, I remember talking to you when you were doing some research on that. And I remember you mentioning to me, you're trying to find this case file because you feel that this is going to answer some of the questions that you wanted. So uh, tell us about that, because I think that will be interesting to researchers that listen to is what you had to go through to find that case file and then uh, uh, the whole thing, because I thought it was just fascinating to read the depositions in the book that you found and some of the uh, other things that came to light with that. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, of, of all the family lore, the little nuggets that my grandmother would share you know, repeatedly um, when I was young, the most Thing she was the most proud of was that his integrity in in it being known that he was one of the good guys that there was some sort of bribe offered to him as the captain of the team to lose the championship game on purpose or series of games to some sort of fix whatever you know the, the plan was uh wasn't clear to me at the time but that he reported it to his coach and and the um the coach ended up reporting it to the the team management and they tried you know, in some harebrained way, as it turned out, to diffuse it all. And um, and it really ended up blowing up on all of them. Um, and eventually, um, the uh, E.J. Stewart, who was the team's manager and, and an initial amateur quarterback, and also the sports editor of the Maslin Gleaner newspaper, so he was very, you know, biased, obviously, and, and really created the, the 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 rivalry more than anybody else by um, uh, dramatizing the the the, uh, the negotiations with Blondie Wallace leading up to the championship game and, and creating angst between the teams and really bitterness with Blondie Wallace along the way, and then after the the two games the uh the team split the two games they the, the 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 people suspected rumors were spreading that the games were fixed so that there could be a third game and um a fight broke out in in the the Cortland hotel in Canton uh when somebody stood up and screamed these games were fixed and and the players were in the bar after the game, having lost the second game to Maslin in no mood for that, but no, they weren't. And a fights broke out. Somebody went through the glass window, just like in a Burt Reynolds movie and people wanted answers. So EJ Stewart's response was to write a full page front page article in the Maslin cleaner the next day, denying that the games were fixed. However, admitting finally that there was an attempted bribe um, by one of their own players um, who they released, a fellow named Walter East. And um, 
And East actually admitted to, you know, being connected to uh, gamblers who provided the money for this. But um, when when the paper and E.J. Stewart went a step too far and accused Blondie Wallace of colluding in, in, in the scheme and, and Wallace denied it and East even absolved him in, in the newspaper of, of complicity, um, that's what really blew everything up. And Blondie Wallace sued the newspaper and the team and for libel and ultimately couldn't uh, absolve himself because he at least officially ran out of money to continue fighting you know the case so it went down in history uh, unknown as to whether he was involved or not and and he could never clear his name so um he, he was sort of the shoeless joe jackson of, of football in in many ways and yeah I, I i was just gonna say that i mean it it, it says and, and i guess that's the thing I was going to ask, I mean, knowing the story of eight men out about the Black Sox scandal, and I think that was 1919, right? right. I look at my dad for a second there to see because I know that he knows that. But he was um, there, actually. He, he, he was, he was just like everything else. He was there when they shot Liberty Valance as well. Um, but uh, let's let's think about that for a second. Your great grandfather, Bob Shiring, I mean, did you know him? Did you ever meet him, Greg? No, he passed away, and I think um, about seven years before I was born. Yeah. So I, I guess this was also a chance for you to get to know the man too, and knowing that that your great grandfather was kind of the shoeless Joe Jackson of professional football in its infancy. What else did you learn about Bob Shiring, the man, that maybe you didn't know about his life after football, his life during football, his his you know his his marriages, whatever it may have been. What did you learn about him that you didn't know that that tied to some of his football stuff? So beyond the football history, which I think is fascinating enough for many people, for some people that don't uh, aren't as interested in, in football, many people love just the morality play involved here. It could be any subject, but but their um, the background drop happens to be football and, the, and a lot of people love a cold case or a backstory or just the, the the beauty of the photo the vintage photos but the um it's it's really the dichotomy you know uh, uh, of wallace really being the shoeless joe jackson perhaps falsely accused of uh, of um uh, of a crime more or less fraud uh versus and what what the the consequences of, of just those allegations did to his life you know he he became um he was blackballed out of football and despite being an icon essentially of that era an all-american at penn and a national champion and and a real pioneer of of, of the game and in in starting the first pro team in philadelphia before you know and getting connie mack on board from the baseball philadelphia a's to to invest and, and help with that. And then taking his show to, to Canton, being recruited to go out and run the team over there and taking the, the full responsibility, financial re responsibility from the, for that team in the 1906s, which nobody had done before other than like industrial, you know, wealthy people. He took all the risks. So oh, an incredible um, person in, in, in pioneer in many ways, 
whose life then became, you know, devolved into a life of crime. And the question, was it really nature or nurture for him? You know, was he a bad guy who, who just did one bad thing after the next and, and ended up being one of the biggest bootleggers in the country in his home and in New Jersey afterward and end up being chased by the, the FBI and the feds and going to jail? Um, or was it because he, he you know, was falsely accused and couldn't didn't have any other answers you know for a career um not even having graduated from Penn because he didn't make the grades there to finish you know do his senior year so and a really fascinating character versus Bob Shiring who by all accounts is almost too you know too good to be true I could see some people reading this saying oh he's just you know um just making his grandfather to be great-grandfather to be this perfect guy but he, he almost was, the, you know, uh, the underdog, um, sort of without much education, rising to this peak of his career and a captain of a world championship team. And then uh, while being um, first suspected of perhaps colluding in this scheme, since he was offered the bribe, it quickly came out that he had reported it and, and had done the right thing. But after that whole situation being able to go back to Pittsburgh and sort of leveraging his career to become a very prominent financial services uh, entrepreneur and, and, and business owner, sort of being the, 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 the guru of, of the little town of Wilmerding with taxes and insurance and real estate and for serving his community as the justice of the peace and the head of the Shiring Agency, which still exists today, believe it or not, in that little town, although it's outside of the family. But um, the, the it's, it's just, there's life lessons there of what, you know, down the road, doing the right things led to a good outcome for, for him. And Blondie, you know, wasn't able to, to make good in his, his life, basically. Um, but uh, if he could somehow be redeemed uh, from, you know, beyond the grave and, and it, it would be, you know, without <laughs> too much of a spoiler alert, um, th that's where, you know, it, it would be justice. Uh, the wheels of justice could, could, could end up turning very slowly. Well, at least they're going to turn, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because obviously your great grandfather was a man of integrity. I know that one of the co-players too, that you mentioned in the book is uh, tiny Maxwell, who was also right. offered the bribe and he, he turned it down too. by the way, tiny Maxwell was by no means tiny based on the pictures, uh, but I always get a kick, but I always get a kick out of the nicknames from those days. Uh, but you know, Blondie Wallace was basically sort of demonized and, uh, um, you know, not to not to spoil the, the, the story, but um, I think people will be pleasantly surprised to find what you did when you got a chance to look at that uh, that case file. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting, too, is um, this this scandal almost killed pro football. Uh, right. uh, it, it took a while for it to come back. I mean, everybody knows, you know, growing up in Canton, uh, as I did. You know, we always knew the story of the NFL Canton Bulldogs, and we always knew the story of Jim Thorpe and stuff like that. I don't remember as a kid ever hearing the name Blondie Walls. It wasn't until I became a researcher that I started hearing about the name Blondie Walls and some of those things. But, you know, there was a period sort of a, a, 
a dead period for pro football after that 1906 season, if you can go into that. Right. So uh, it, it is a, another fun fact that that the the wonderful rivalry between today's Maslin Tigers and Canton Bulldogs in Stark County in, in Ohio at the high school level, which I've had the wonderful uh, pleasure, you know, to to participate in as a spectator three times now. I just love coming up for those games. Well, the uh, next year, next year when you come, Greg, because I, I hope you would come. Let us know and we'll we'll grab breakfast with you beforehand because I'd love to. We'd love to, to go to the game with you. That'd be a blast. Go ahead, though. Keep telling the story. You'll have to join uh, more than 20 of my family. Uh, we had 23 friends and family at the game. This year. It's become our family reunion. We've hey, reunion again. It, so, it brings people together. Go go ahead with the story, yeah, though, what you were saying. For sure. So um, um, the, uh, the, the war since 1894, as they say, um, They've been playing at the high school level somehow, even before the, the pro teams, but they weren't called the Tigers and the Bulldogs until the pro uh, teams were established. Um, it, it, I can't say for sure, but to your, to your point about why this, the story of, of the pre-NFL era was basically lost uh, or so little known, seems to me is because of, of this scandal most likely that people didn't want to remember the 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 dark period or you know seemingly dark period that happened and, and have that be their their origin story they would prefer to forget it and um the the people the fans that supported started supporting the game up you know in ohio from 1903 to 06 after the 10-year Pittsburgh period from 1892 to 1902, um, sort of gave up on it, thought it was corrupt and you know not trustworthy, so didn't support it. And it took about 10 years to get over that until some folks in Canton, namely the um, Jack Cusack, who gets credit for uh, having been like an equipment kid or ball boy, basically, when he was about 16 for, for the Canton pro team in 1906 loved it so much was even in the bar in the Cortland hotel when that fight broke out despite being 16 and um somebody asked him if, if he would be interested in you know restarting and try v2 of the canton pro team and he said it was the most fun he ever had in his life and he he would love to do that so it was his idea to recruit jim thorpe um to come and play for the the new bulldogs and thinking that that would bring people back out and and it did um for sure they had huge crowds uh by those days standards Ten thousand and more people would come to see jim thorpe play and then uh newt rockney followed a couple a couple short years later and they would play against each other matt rockney for maslin and thorpe for canton so um so 1915 to 1919 or so, the game grows. All of a sudden, there's 14 professional teams or so around the, not just Ohio, but surrounding states. And as you know, the owners got together in the Ralph Hayes Hupmobile in Canton and formed uh, first called the American Pro Football Association in 1920, which shortly two years later became known as the NFL. So yeah, it was... Um, um 
but the pioneers, you know, the founders' story was uh, was gone, and and they deserved it deserves to be known, and they deserve to be honored, and ultimately, hopefully, um, the Hall of Fame picks up on it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in the book you mentioned that a question that you asked directly to Joe Horrigan was, given the fact that your great grandfather was probably the greatest center of that era. Shouldn't he be in the Hall of Fame? I was just going to ask that. Do you think? Do you think Bob Shiring should have a bust in the Hall of Fame? Um, honestly, yes. I, not just him, but I, I think if not busts, for th- there's a, a group of of those pioneers who should uh, be uh, have an exhibit, de- you know, significant exhibit devoted to them. Um, and so Joe and I had that conversation when I first visited the hall of fame in 2012 with my mother actually and and uh, i suggested that maybe that was the purpose of, of my whole uh quest you know on, on sort of the calling that i had uh to 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 have these men uh honored uh, as such and um at the time he very you know clearly and directly said that you know that would not happen because it was the policy of the Hall of Fame not not to uh, include players from the pre NFL era, which was a little disappointing, you know, a little let down uh, after you know, at the end of that journey, it seemed. But um, he said not that this is the NFL Hall of Fame; it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And yes, he was the greatest center of the period, but um, they look at it like there's probably twenty, you know, or so people players worthy of that honor and they just don't have enough information or didn't at the time to uh select them and um and differentiate them so um fortunately you know except now almost 10 years later when when joe spoke at the pfra conference in canton last year he had a much different take on it and, and was it was much more encouraging that that something could happen and that they should definitely be honored and and um in some way so looking forward to seeing how that might develop I'm, yeah i i recall that and uh, i think you even mentioned in the book that you felt like the door might be ajar a little bit in regard to that uh and i think that's uh that's uh hopeful i'm i'm looking at the book right now and i'm gonna stick it up and we don't put video out of this but i'm gonna show you that i have it in my hand but um i do have it in my hand i, I want to know is your great-grandfather on the front cover here like if i'm looking at this Right. Where can I find Bob Shiring in this um, uh, very black and white photo of, of players that I'm looking at right here? Which one is him? Well, he is front and center holding the ball, which was the honor bestowed upon the captain. That's pretty cool. That's a that's a pretty cool thing. I was wondering if if that was him, that, that there's the hat right below him. He's clearly wearing what looks like a white shirt. He's got the football in his hands and obviously not the football that we're so used to seeing today that looks so... Um, perfectly put together by Wilson, uh, as, as many people use it, but uh, a much more, you know, round-shaped football. almost <laughs> looks like a basketball that he's holding. Um, I was going to ask you about the book, too. Obviously, it's it's about the story of your great-grandfather, but your forward in this is by Franco Harris. Um, and Franco just passed recently. Um, what did it mean and what does it mean to have Franco's words as the forward to this? And and how close did you and Franco become when putting this project together? Thanks for asking that. Um, it means a lot, and, and and even more now than than it did before 
uh, obviously such a blessing to um, have his words included for posterity and his take on, on um, the importance of the story, the significance of it, what it meant to him even. Uh, a lot of people ask, you know, how did I get to know him? And it, um, as things developed, when the Senator John Hines History Center opened in Pittsburgh, I can't remember exactly what year, um, early 2000s, I, I think. It took me several years to get there since I wasn't living in Pittsburgh at the time. But when I finally did, um, I caught the spirit of the place and the passion for it right away and befriended uh, one of their uh, exhibit associates and, and did some work together to donate some of my other memorabilia to, to their exhibits and eventually uh, in appreciation of that they invited me to be on their advisory board which they called the champions committee and uh, that was 2012 and Franco was the head of that and so in my first meeting that summer I'm sitting there next to Franco at the table watching a video that they put together of the greatest moments in Pittsburgh sports history and I'm watching the Immaculate Reception while sitting next to Franco, and that was pretty surreal. So um, when we all introduced ourselves around the table, um, and I sort of briefly mentioned my project, and uh, um, he approached me afterward and said how interested he was in it and actually offered if, to be helpful in any way possible, which was amazing. And um, I suggested at some point, though I had a lot of work still to do, that it would be great if he would uh, write a foreword for it. And he said he would be glad to and just let him know and and not to worry about the the time. And this was one of the many special things he said was, uh, he said, you have something really you know timeless here that uh, it'll be ready when it's supposed to be ready. So I thought that was pretty powerful and sort of God's timing and the whole thing. And, you know, 10 years, maybe at least five years, uh, about, probably about 10 years later, I circled back with him and um, he was joking with me. He pretended to forget, you know, our he said, did I say I would do that? And uh, I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm just kidding. So he he, uh, he asked me to send him the, the soft copy of it, which he didn't and give him the weekend to read it. And um and that's one little more nice story I'll share about his thoughtfulness. He he said, call me on Monday, you know, and I did. And he he said, you know, I didn't have a chance to obviously to read it all, but I read the beginning and, and you're a really good writer. And, and I said, well, wow, thank you. He said, well, there's one line in particular that 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 stuck out to me. And I said, I bet I know what, which one it is. And he said, which one? And, and I mentioned the line about, um that as athletes we live for moments when when we become more than we thought we could be and basically in our performance and i and he said that's it and i said well of course you had the immaculate reception and and he said no no it wasn't that is it and i and i said well sometime in, in my writing i said it could be in front of the whole world you know and, and live forever or it could be just a something personal that nobody else noticed, but you appreciated yourself to, to that effect. And he said, there was this one play that I would lay in bed thinking about, uh, this one move that I always wanted to do. <laughs> and, 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 and 
It happened one day against the Cowboys. I said, was it in a Super Bowl? He said, no, it's just a, a regular season game. And and I broke through the line and there was this linebacker named Lewis. And, and, and I said, it was D.D. Lewis. He said, yeah, D.D. Lewis. He said, you got it. And he said, I, I, I pulled this move, this fake and spun away from him and and it worked and I scored. And he says, just how I dreamed it up. And, and he said, I didn't even know if D.D. knew what, what happened or what I did. And years later, I saw him speak and he spoke of this play, the Franco, this move that Franco put on him one time. And he ended up with his hand inside his face mask. <laughs> you know, and, it, go ahead, go ahead. But that was really special to me that I, that I touched. Uh, I, I think just that the, the, the intro was about sort of why we're passionate about putting sports so much. And that resonated with him and made him willing to write the forward. You know, I was going to say, I've, I've, I've interviewed a number of Hall of Famers in my time, and, and I had the, the pleasure to speak to Franco for like two minutes one time at a camp in Canton. And uh, I asked him, the last question I asked him was, did you catch it? And he just looked at me and he laughed and he said, that's for you to decide. Um, and and I, I saw him later, I was in the bathroom and we were next to each other in the stall and I just looked at him and he and I just both laughed at each other. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting to me that you mentioned the character of your uh, great grandfather, because I think that a modern day guy that a lot of people would say embodies the character of the NFL as a guy like Franco Harris. I mean, did it for a long time, did it the right way was, you know, the guy that was the, the image of that, that steel curtain team offensively, um, the great running back that he was. And, and he is, was, uh, such a high character individual. Um, it, it's gotta be cool to know that, a hall of famer like 32 is the one that that spoke that pen that for you knowing his character as well right absolutely i couldn't think of anybody better and i did spend a lot of time thinking about who to ask to do that and uh, but he was always number one and um and and others who gave quotes within the book rocky blyer and um frenchy fuqua and merrill hodge among some of the Steelers, but also uh ken Cripp and 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 andy masich the ceo of the heinz history center other historians but um a lot of thought went into that and and you can't get everyone that you want to do it but um after franco sadly passed recently i went back and we texted a lot too just about different things when he was a big tennis fan i played college tennis and you know we just had some fun together and um um i sent him some copies of, of the book uh, when it finally printed you know, this summer um, for him to enjoy and some of his friends. And, and I just checked in with him to see if he got them. And he said he had, he was looking forward to a relaxing uh, Labor Day weekend, reading it and, uh, and thanked me for letting him be a part of the project, which is just, you know, incredible, you know, not that, I mean, I'm so thankful to him and, and anybody would be, but not everybody would just, you know, thank, you know, uh, return the thanks. And so that's pretty special. Uh, I know that um, one thing that we talked about uh, recently, Greg, is that uh, I know you're you're trying to take the book a step further and possibly do something in other uh, media, TV or film. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks. Um Actually, before I even started writing the book myself, I, I was introduced to a filmmaker named Rick Cohen, 
who was living in Atlanta at the time, because uh, he had a son in college here, but he had spent many years in LA um, working on sports um, media projects and documentaries and, and, and films. Um, nothing, you know, super big or, or well-known, but he was here in Atlanta and, and he had um, a big interest in the story after having read the Sports Illustrated article that also came out in 2012 and many, all these things seemed to start happening that year. Um, and so he said, yes, I'd seen that and uh, I'd love to come over and see your, your collection and talk about this uh, potential for, for, for a screenplay or a film or a mini series and documentary, let's see, see what makes sense. So he came to, to our home and, um, before he left that day, I mean, we, we, it just seemed to, to click. He, he had also ironically played football at Penn like Blondie Wallace. <laughs> so he had, uh, it was just too, you know, um, fortuitous and, um, synchronicity, I guess, in, in some ways. So, uh, it seemed like it was meant to be basically. And, and so we started down the path and, um, he wrote a very interesting, uh, I think, wonderful six-part miniseries that's completely done, currently called Maslin. I think it should be called Canton because people connect Canton more to football, but he likes the you know, masculine masculinity of Maslin. So we'll see how that works. Whoever, whatever network uh, buys it can, can have the naming rights, I suppose. But uh, it, it's, it's a little more historical fiction had to have a female character or two in there for for uh, for a interest, but um, I really like it. So uh, I, I think whatever, however any any production company would want to change it, the bo the bones of a really good story are there with a lot of great elements. You know, you mentioned in passing, I meant to ask about that and we didn't as we're sort of closing up here, but you mentioned the Sports Illustrated article and there was a Sports Illustrated article called the, I believe the first Super Bowl. Correct. Uh, and, it and it was about the Canton Massa 1906 season. And uh, I think you even uh, had a credit in that article, if I'm not mistaken. I did photo credit. Uh, the, the writer was Richard Hoffer. And uh, he had written for 25 years as a full-time journalist for them. I guess he had was semi-retired at the time. And um, so got to do a longer form project for them. And when he went to the Hall of Fame to start it, uh, I think Salim Chowdhury and, and uh, was helping him with start his research. And, and Salim just told him, uh, just save your time. Call Greg. He's already done it all. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. So he, he called me up, said, what do you got? You know, how, how can you help? And I, and I told him all my sources, you know, books and, and so on. And at the end, I said, said to him, well, hey, you might want some photos for that article. I, I have, you know, my great grandfather's collection. And he's like, said, what? He said, nobody has photos from that time. He said, That's really special. He said, of course, we'd like to use a couple um, and even maybe uh, in our separate um, football history coffee table book. And I said, well, glad to let you use some for the article, but I'm going to work on my own book at some point. He said he even thought about doing a, a, a novel or something um, afterward, but he got into some other projects. But speaking of novels, aside from the 
the uh, this mini series that Rick Cohen uh, wrote with my help. Uh, another publishing company now wants to uh, have me help as a story advisor on a novel uh, related to the story and really develop all the characters in, in their own way, um, which I think will be super fun to, uh, to sort of brainstorm and whiteboard um, all of the dialogue that might have happened. Last thing for you here, Greg, uh, before we let you go, and, and we thank you so much, Greg Vasari, author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. Uh, author is Greg Vasari, forward by Franco Harris. Uh, thanks to you for being on the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast as part of the Sports History Network. Last thing we want to let you do here is where can people buy the book? Where can people find you? Do you have Twitter? Do you have Facebook? Do you have um, how active are you on the social media platforms? And uh, where can people buy this uh, this great book that's a, a nice, uh, I guess, complement to the history of the game? Oh, well, thanks for the chance to plug. Um, I have spent uh, some a good bit of time recently changing hats in, into the, the marketing and PR uh, aspect of it all and working with a, an excellent digital marketing uh, company here in Atlanta. Uh, we did a nice uh, Facebook ad campaign um, before the holidays that was successful, and we're about to start another one any day uh, in the run-up to the Super Bowl. So um, I have a Gridiron Legacy Facebook uh, page as well as my personal page. I have a personal Instagram page where I also post a lot of things in, um, about the book and on LinkedIn. I don't do Twitter. Um but the, the gridironlegacy.com website is currently the only place to, to buy the book and, and learn more about it. Uh, we put a lot of events and recordings. We'll put this one up there from other podcasts. I, I did ESPN radio in Pittsburgh yesterday with Stan Saverin, actually, which was saw that. Big step. You had the, what's uh, he's, he's known out there as like what, like the Godfather or something like that. Isn't that his, he is a nickname. The power like hour. I, I don't know yeah. what, what you know, he's, things yeah no he's 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 a he's a powerful man he's a legend he is he is eventually amazon uh coming this fall we've got to get them some inventory before they can it's in listed in pre-sale on amazon right now okay okay well greg we uh we really appreciate it i know george and i both do uh and uh it's a great story it's a great book and uh thanks for joining us here Thank you so much. Uh, good luck as you move forward with, with your podcast. Thanks, Thanks, Ray. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com 
forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>